Amen. Thank you, Elvie. Let's thank Elvie for sharing with us today. And thank you, Elvie, for having the courage to um, go into the Zoom prayer room, but also to follow the prompting of the Spirit and pray for somebody else as well. So we started this journey in prayer several weeks ago where we talked about prayer is more about our communion with God than a conversation. Prayer can also, as Elby was sharing, be about our communion with one another. We can come alongside one another and pray. So after every service, we have prayer ministers over here that would love to pray with you and to pray for you. We talked about in prayer, God's character is more important than our character. It's not our self-righteousness, right? It's not our great works that get God to move. It's who God is much more important and weighty than what we bring into prayer. Last week, Pastor James talks about the Lord's Prayer. And this week, we talk about confession, my confession and our confession, individual confession and communal confession. I've had people say, well, why confess, right? God has already forgiven all my sins, past, present, and future. So what is the point? Or if God already knows everything, why do, does it matter if I tell him? Or can I use confession in, in some sort of twisted way to earn God's forgiveness, somehow earn his grace? And those are all good questions because God has, in fact, forgiven you. He doesn't have to go back to the cross, right, for past, present, future. He knows things in your heart when you first came to him that you didn't know, and he forgives. God does know it all, but again, prayer is not this transactional thing. It's transformational. We want to invite him into all that we do and all that we are. And so it's about this communion with him. So let's, let's dig in. I want to look at 1 John 1, 9 to 10. And this is where we hear this truth. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. So there's this individual component of confession that we can pray to God, but also a communal component. As Grace was sharing earlier, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. There's a burden that is lifted when we confess with one another, when we share what we're carrying. We don't have to carry it alone. We're meant to be in community. We're meant to share the weight of the load. Jesus carried his cross, and he invites us to each carry our own cross. And as a community, we can come alongside and help share in that burden. Now, what does confession mean? Right? It means to say the same thing or to acknowledge. It means there's a consistency. You're acknowledging what God already knows to be true. You're saying, yes, I acknowledge it. This is true. It means, yes, I can see in my heart that this is who I am. There's an integrity and an honesty that we're making with ourselves here. When we confess our sins, we're admitting to God what he already knows. Now, does God need our confession? Confession is more of a spiritual discipline for our own benefit. It's a little bit like the discipline of generosity. We're commanded to give not because God needs our gifts, right? Everything is the Lord's already, and everything in this world is his. But generosity is an invitation to God to transform our hearts. It's more about our heart. Confession is the same in that way, that it's an invitation that God gives us to welcome his transformation into our being, into our lives, into our hearts. 
Sky Jathani, who um, wrote this book that's been helpful for me in this season, is What If Jesus Was Serious About Prayer. He says, it is a discipline that forces us to abandon the false self-image we'd prefer to believe so that we must gaze at our true self. In confession, we're being honest with what's inside us. We're not managing our image. We're not managing what other people think. We're just coming to grips with the reality of what is in our heart. See, we can be tempted to always put ourselves on the right side of each conflict, right? We can paint ourselves in a positive picture. I'm only doing this because of what you did. Confession is a way to be honest and to say, you know what, I'm going to own my part of what's happened here. It's a guardrail for our behavior. I know that for me, it's easy to justify my actions. You know, the, the, the mind justifies the decisions of the heart, right? And for those of you that have been here for a little while, you know that I like to ride my bike. And riding my bike in Hong Kong is a spiritual formation opportunity for me because people aren't real friendly to bikes, right? They honk on the horn. They, they steer too close to you. And there's lots of opportunities for uh, anger to come up within me, for me to display less than Christian-like behavior. And God has been working on me in this. But it was so easy for me to justify in those moments my angry response. I wouldn't do this if you hadn't done that. Now, it doesn't make what they did right, but it doesn't make my response right. So many times we can blame, we can shift blame, we can shift ownership for our behavior onto others and not own it ourselves. Confession forces us to own what's in there, to not blame somebody else, but to own it for ourselves. Confession is an invitation to receive the grace that we each need. Confession shows us that we need his grace. And God's grace reminds us that he loves us, that he has forgiven us everything that we've done. I want to look at the story of David. David was the king of Israel, and he was called somebody after God's own heart, and yet he had serious flaws. One day as king, he's on the top of the palace looking down. He sees Bathsheba bathing. He's tempted. He, he sleeps with Bathsheba. Bathsheba gets pregnant. What does David do? Does he go to God and say, I'm so sorry. I messed up. I need to make this right. No. He hides it. He gets Bathsheba's husband, who's very loyal to David, killed, right? David should have brought his sin to God, but he did not. And hiding our sin will disrupt our prayers more than the sin itself. God already knows it, but when we hide it, we sort of remove ourselves for God to work in that situation. We stay in a dark place and we don't bring it into the light. God knows what's going on, but if we cover it up, we're not acknowledging what we've done and we're not open to his grace and forgiveness. I know in my life I can do this all the time. I can hide those things, right? I can prioritize my needs over the needs of others. And I want to be justified. I want to have an excuse. I, I want to defend my wrong action instead of just saying, you know what? I was wrong. 
I get caught in my own headspace in this justification game without just coming to God and say, I am sorry, I have messed up. Richard Foster says it this way, we lift even our disobedience into the arms of the Father. He is strong enough to carry the weight. So to be sure, sin separates us from God, but trying to hide our sin separates us all the more. Hiding what's already there does not bring us into God's grace and healing. We see the writer of Psalm 32 say it this way, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. And there's a weightiness to that when we haven't confessed it. And he goes on, then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you didn't forgive me? No, and you forgave me. You forgave the guilt of my sin. Now, David needed a nudge to come out of hiding. So God sends Nathan to David, and Nathan, it's not easy to confront a king when that king can take your life. Nathan tells David a story about a rich man and a poor man, and the poor man had a lamb that was really a part of the family. They loved this lamb. And also a rich man who had many sheep, But the rich man has a guest come, and they want to throw a party, and the rich man takes the poor man's lamb, has it slaughtered for the feast. And Nathan says, what should we do? And David says, for sure, this rich man should be punished. I can't believe they would do that. Nathan says, you are that rich man. And David is cut to the heart. He can finally see what he has done. It leads to his brokenness and finally to his confession. We get his confession in Psalm 21. I'm not going to read the whole psalm, and I encourage you to, but this is what David does before God. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all of my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. It's a beautiful psalm of confession. He asked for God's mercy. He asked for God's forgiveness. He asked for God's compassion and he desires to have his heart created clean. Grace had shared several weeks ago about transformation being a process. And this is what David is asking God to do, to to create a fresh, to create a new. He's not just asking, you know, let me try to manage my sin. He wants an inside-out transformation. Many of us might feel guilty about our sin, try to escape the consequences of our sinful decisions, but how many of us want to confess our sins so we can be reconnected rightly with God? See, our our horizontal relationships are connected to our vertical relationships, and David understands this. He's wanting that connection with God so his connection to others can be restored as well. Confession, mine and ours, we've been looking at individual confession, but I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about communal confession. What does it look like to confess those things with the various communities we might be a part of, school, church, clubs, our city, our world? 
I don't know if you've thought about confession on that level. We live in a pretty individualistic society. Sometimes our faith can look pretty individualistic. It's about my salvation, my forgiveness, my grace, my wrongdoing. But what about those of our community? What about those of humanity? Scripture talks about our faith more in a communal context than an individual context. So it forces us to step back and and to not be so individualistic in our faith. Can we confess on behalf of those we do life with, where we have fallen short, where we have contributed to the part of status quo, of oppression, of systems of injustice? Can we work towards reconciliation and righting the wrongs of inequality that we may benefit from ourselves? I'll look at that the U.S. as an example, the country that I am from, and it's easy to see the issues of racism and systemic racial injustice. Even though laws have been amended, the system is still a problem. It's more than just each person getting right with God. You need to, you need to have systems redeemed that are still part of oppression. And I'll look specifically these last few years, especially um, at my own tribe. I came out of white evangelicals in the U.S. who are more concerned with defending the fact that they're not complicit in this than trying to work for things to be better. And maybe we all do that on some level. I've heard people say, I wasn't alive then. I didn't, I didn't own any slaves. I haven't personally been racist towards somebody else. And they're so concerned about their individual innocence, they're not owning the systemic injustice and sin that they themselves might be benefiting from. We see Martin Luther King, and I won't read the whole quote, and it's really probably too small for you to see it. But he says this in 1963. He says, I must confess that over the past few years, I've been gravely disappointed with the right with the white moderate. In the midst of blatant injustices, I have watched white churchmen stand on the sideline and mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialties. In the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice, I have heard many ministers say, those are social issues with which the gospel has no real concern. See, a theology that excludes the other a theology that wants to define itself on individualistic terms, a theology that promotes status quo, that keeps us very comfortable in a privileged position, is not a big enough theology. It's not what God desires from us. I've seen more people, perhaps the majority of American white Christians, work harder to deny their guilt than to try to figure out how to make things right. And maybe each of us does this in our own communities, in our own city. See, we all need to carry a bit of the cross. Jesus invites us to that as a community, as a group, as a church. I want our church to care about everybody, not just those here, God so loved the world. He invites us to have the same care and compassion that he does. We're, in a, we're an inclusive community that welcomes all, and yet we live in a divided city. 
Maybe God is calling us to be peacemakers. Maybe it's to the person on the other side of the political party line. Maybe he's inviting you to expand your theology to be beyond yourself and to include the other, whoever that other might be for you. We need to confess ways that we've been a part of a system that is messed up, whether we've directly contributed or just received the benefits of that system. Scripture, though, doesn't let us off the hook there. It drives us deeper. It drives us deeper to the things in our communities, in our cities, that maybe we truly have not had any influence on. We see this in Daniel. Daniel's a very interesting character in the Bible. You'll see in the Old Testament, all the heroes of the faith, all of them had major flaws, major sins that Scripture lifts up. Daniel, we don't hear any of those things. We don't hear about idolatry. We don't hear about disobeying God's laws. It doesn't say, any, it doesn't say he was perfect, but it doesn't lift up any of his sin. But Daniel's grieved for his people. He's grieved for what they've done. So we get this beautiful prayer from Daniel. Starting with verse 4, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Lord the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. God's people were guilty of the big sins of idolatry, of having false gods, of disobeying God. We have no evidence of Daniel doing any of these things. And yet, what does Daniel pray? He includes himself in the wickedness of the people. We have sinned. We have done wrong. We have been wicked over and over. We saw this last week with the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our sins. Forgive us our debts. Daniel sees his connection with God primarily in a communal sense. These are his people. God is grieved for his people. And Daniel stands in that place confessing what his people have done. Daniel was innocent, but he accepted the burden of the people of God. We're going to have a time of, of confession, both individual, communal, and city, and globally. You'll each have pieces of paper on your chair that I would encourage you to think about in terms of individually, as a community, it might be your school, might be groups you're a part of, could be our city for its income inequality, the stress we put on our kids with academic pressures, our busyness in making money but not caring for the poor, it could be our world, how we treat the environment, it could be our nationalism that we see tearing things down. But before we go into those times, and I will encourage you to write them on there, and we'll have a time where you can bring them up to the front. But first, I want to lead us through a, a communal confession for our church. I reached out to several people um, in our church community and said, what as a church do we need to confess of? And last night, before I went to bed, I'd collected a number of them, and 
I'm trying to get to sleep, and it's just weighing heavy on my heart. I did not sleep well last night. I think I ended up with a few hours of sleep, and it was, you know, around two in the morning, you know, and turning all of this over in my mind, and it's like, you know, being reminded that bring this to God. Bring all of this to God. Don't try to work it out in your own head, but commune with God in this moment. His character is more important than ours and was finally able to do that. And so I'm going to lead us through a litany. I'll have several phrases, and this will be what you say, and I'll prompt us to say this out loud, and then we'll go into a response time, and hopefully it will make sense as we go. Okay? Understand? All right. Let's begin in prayer. Lord, we confess our spiritual pride, our self-righteousness, our judgmentalism that looks at the speck in the other person's eye, while ignoring the log in our own eye. And the people said, Lord, hear our prayer. Lord, we confess a lukewarm faith that prioritizes our comfort and our schedules and keeps us at a distance from the very real needs of the poor in our communities. Lord, we confess our lack of obedience to your teaching, unforgiveness in our hearts, We confess that we have not loved each other the way we should. We confess that our focus on being a close community has excluded those who may need community the most. Lord, hear our prayer. Lord, you provide that we may be generous, but we greedily hoard as if your well will run dry. You forgive time and again, but we hold fast to the sins of others. You offer light for our path, but we insist on making our own way. You are the God who saves. Lord, save us from ourselves. In your great mercy, restore and heal us and grant us your peace. Each time in this prayer service series, we've had time for personal prayer, and we're going to do that now. The worship team is going to sing, but we're creating space for you guys to connect with God. I would encourage you to write down the things on your heart that maybe have been stirring, whether it's individual confession for a group, for the city, and to bring those to the front. We'll destroy these after the service as a way of releasing them to God, as a way of bringing them in front. Um, We also have the altar open here and the prayer stations if you'd like to light a candle. Candles are wonderful symbols of hope. Wonderful symbols that we confess and God forgives. We don't have to carry this weight. God will step into us and minister to us in this moment. Church, let's invite God's Spirit to be working now.